coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast. Um, and as a rheumatologist that also sees a lot of sarcoidosis, you know, we tend to borrow our treatments for sarcoidosis from other diseases. The Sark Fighter podcast brings you researcher Dr. Matt Baker from Stanford University. His work, One More Reason for Hope. Sarcoidosis is, is a rare disease and it's, it's definitely understudied. And so there aren't a lot of large clinical trials um, to, to help guide us or to get FDA approval. My interview with Dr. Matt Baker is coming up. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 41 of the Sark Fighter podcast, brought to you in part by a grant from A-Tire Pharma. I'm your host, John Carlin. I do this podcast to offer fellow Sark fighters hope, and we have some good reason for that today, because coming up will be my interview with Dr. Matt Baker of Stanford University. And I'll tell you more about Matt here in just a minute. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards in Alberta, Canada. And you can hear Mark's story. He's a fellow Sark Fighter. Uh, the story behind the lyrics to that song in episode 12. And when you look at the lyrics, man, I tell you, he is literally singing our song and his song, right? I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I'm fighting Sark and so are you, whether you're a caregiver, a patient, a researcher, wherever wherever you are in the sarcoidosis space, you're here for a reason if you're listening to this podcast, a place where we all gather. And, you know, I hear over and over and over that people feel like they're all alone. They don't know anybody else who has sarcoidosis and even people in populated areas. It's one thing if you live out in North Dakota uh, or Alaska or someplace where folks don't live that close together, but I'll hear from people in New Jersey who don't know anybody else who has sarcoidosis. So uh, this is a place where, where we can gather and you can just sort of listen to other people's uh, dealings with sarcoidosis on your own time and at your own pace. And I, and I do, I always want to make sure that you know that there is a reason for hope. And I release the podcast every other Monday. And as I'm speaking, as usual, my trusty dog, Dougal, my boxer, is settled here. Uh, normally he's in the chair next to me, but this morning he is all curled up on the floor at my feet. And he's right here in my office studio, and, and Dougal is one of those things that makes my life so much better. I've had dogs all my life, and I think since sarcoidosis, I've started to appreciate the little things more. And uh, one of those is just um, just how much I love having a dog, and so uh, I appreciate Dougal being in here with me. Uh, a, couple of, a couple of personal notes before I tell you more about uh, Dr. Baker, but um, I'm just back as I speak today from a fishing trip in Montana, which was a bucket list trip for me. And we stayed, a friend of mine and I stayed at the Madison Valley Ranch, which is on the Madison River, and it's outside Ennis, Montana. And before I went, I don't know why, I had never heard of Ennis, Montana, but uh, <laughs> you pull into town and it says, Welcome to Ennis, I'll maybe I'll even put a picture of the sign on the in the show notes. It says, Welcome to Ennis, population 840, 
and 11 million trout. <laughs> that seemed to be about right. They've got this little tiny main street with a couple of cafes and uh, actually a saloon um, and, you know, some little shops and whatnot. And then four or five fly fishing shops. And, you know, like right now in Roanoke, which is a population where I live of about 100,000, I think we have two fly fishing shops. Um, and I just loved going to these places. So it, it was like, like heaven for me. And then we went out fishing and we caught a, a ton of fish with a guide who took us in a, in a boat where he rose in the middle and my friend Gary and I fished out of the front and the back and he told us everything to do and we, we caught a ton of fish, but we also waited a lot. And this is, um, this is kind of interesting, uh, because, uh, because of my sarcoidosis, which is on my spinal cord, I have uh, pretty significant neuropathy in my feet, which means that I, my balance isn't what it used to be. So let's take a guy who has balance that isn't that good, and let's have him stand on slippery rocks. And in fact, let's have that guy stand on slippery rocks when there's current up around his waist and just tell him to walk and fish. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is the stupidest thing I have ever done, right? Uh, but uh, I only fell down once. Uh, I managed to keep my phone dry, and uh, and I was smart enough to just keep my wallet and my other personal things that might suffer from a, uh, a dunk in the river, managed to keep those in the boat. So, uh, But I thought to myself, why am I out here in the middle of this river walking around when, you know, even somebody who has really, really good balance and mobility is going to have a hard time? And I said, no, let's, let's put slippery rocks under a guy, and then let's add the current on top of that. Um but anyhow, that is how desperate one becomes to just catch the next fish. Uh, and, and I will tell you that uh, it worked, uh, luckily because of the 11 million trout outside Ennis, Montana. Uh, I did see a moose, and I, uh, I was standing in the river all by myself on those slippery rocks, just trying to, trying to figure out how to fish. And I look up, and there is a bull moose, and it's coming right at me. Um, and I'm not going to tell you any more about that. I'm still here. I'm still fine. But apparently moose encounters can be very dangerous. And uh, I've got some captured some amazing video on my cell phone. I put a little put a little video together where I describe the rest of the story. I don't want I don't want to get too far off the topic because today it's all about Ceruliumab, which may be the next great hope for sarcoidosis. And Matt's going to talk about that. But I will put a link to the YouTube video in the show notes. Um, if you want to hear more about my encounter with the moose. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, the takeaway from my Montana trip is even, and I, I would describe myself as being in remission right now. Um, I have not had a flare in a couple of years, but you never know when that thing is going to hit. You never know when the medication is going to stop working. And, I, you know, uh, I've had that happen. Almost everybody that has been on the show who's a SARC patient has had that happen. And when you've got sarcoidosis on your spinal cord, 
you know, every time there's a little bit of damage, it's permanent because it doesn't heal, right? So I never know. I never know when I'm going to have another opportunity to go stand on slippery rocks in the current. So uh, for me, just getting out there and getting this trip and doing this trip was just such a blessing. And, you know, maybe, you know, I... I think I think this to myself. Maybe it's just a rationalization. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just doing uh, creating something to tell my wife. Oh, I have to go fishing. Yeah, I have to go fishing because I never know. Uh, on the other hand, it's true. You just don't know, and so you start moving these bucket list things up. And at any rate, um, this is one that I that I got to do. And I'm just just so happy that it, that I was able to do it. Okay, just just a a, a little pontification and sarcoidosis philosophy here this morning. But today it, it's all about uh, Dr. Matt Baker, and he has a new therapy that he's working on to treat sarcoidosis, and it does look very promising. He's looking at a drug, I mentioned it a moment ago, called cerilumab, which is used to fight right now rheumatoid arthritis, but it looks like it'll help fight SARC as well. It's a biologic. It's similar to uh, when we talk about biologics, we're talking about Remicade or Humira, which I take, and you've probably heard of those, and uh, it seems like everybody, if they can get it approved, uh, who has SARC has had some experience with Remicade. I used to go and, and get my IV every four or six weeks, depending upon where I was in my treatment. But I used to go and get Remicade treatments all the time at the uh, the IV center here locally. But um, again, one of the difficulties with sarcoidosis is that there are very few and, and in some cases, it, it could be argued no drugs after prednisone that are on label to fight the disease. Everyone, of course, gets prednisone. The 98% is the statistic that's been shared with me. And then a lot of people will take methotrexate, uh, and then there are ever a couple other standard drugs that we get, and they're not always effective. And even the effective ones have such drastic side effects that you know, I question whether it's worth it sometimes. Um, but they're all off-label, and that means that they're not recognized as drugs to treat specifically sarcoidosis, even though there's some clinical indications that these drugs work, which means that your insurance likely will require a bit of a fight before approving it. And uh, again, I've taken Remicade, now take Humira. My docs had to file appeals in order to get it done. And it seems like the appeal gets approved right on the day that, you know, you need it. And you're you're wondering, uh, am I just looking at a flare or is the insurance company going to do this? And some of these drugs are extremely expensive and, and most people cannot fund it out of pocket. It's just, it's beyond the scope of the average citizen. So doctors like uh, Dr. Baker are running some trials to get drugs like cerilumab uh, on label for sarcoidosis. And I will tell you that Dr. Baker's a, Dr. Baker is a very good interview. He explains everything so you can understand it. He, he does tell you how it works in your body, but he makes it so you get it. And, and so I could get it. And so my interview with Dr. Baker is coming up next.
Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the Welcome show Welcome back to the, the Sark Fighter Podcast. Podcast. And joining me now is Dr. Matt Baker of Stanford University, who's working on an exciting new project with a drug that's showing some promise in fighting sarcoidosis. Dr. Baker, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So this drug is cerilumab, right? Did I say that right? Yep, that's correct. Okay. And uh, that drug, it's not known as a, a drug that's used in fighting sarcoidosis, uh, but um, it's showing some promise. What do, what do we know about it? Yeah, so this drug is a, a drug that's actually FDA approved and used currently to treat rheumatoid arthritis. And so as a rheumatologist, I use this drug a lot in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and it's highly effective. Um, it's, it's in the category of drugs that we call biologics, meaning it's, a, it's an antibody drug that's actually created and made in, in living systems, which is why we call them biologics. So the other types of drugs in that class that people are probably familiar with are the TNF inhibitors, like Enbrel and Humira and Remicade. Um, those drugs are antibodies also, but they're targeted to a molecule called TNF-alpha, which is, a, is, a, is an inflammatory molecule, what we call a cytokine. Um, this drug, cerilumab, is very similar, but instead of targeting TNF-alpha, it targets a different cytokine that we call interleukin-6 or IL-6, um, which is also responsible for signaling inflammation, causing immune cells to be active and, and resulting in inflammation. And so by blocking the interleukin-6, we can kind of prevent that inflammation. And, and uh, st large studies, and, and we've been using it now for many years, and, and rheumatoid arthritis have shown that it's highly effective for reducing joint pain and swelling in that disease. Um, and as a rheumatologist that also sees a lot of sarcoidosis, you know, we tend to borrow our treatments for sarcoidosis from other diseases because sarcoidosis is, is a rare disease and it's, it's definitely understudied. And so there aren't a lot of large clinical trials um, to, to help guide us or to get FDA approval. So we tend to, to use drugs that are approved in other indications that we think have a good rationale to work. Um, as many people know, we've done that for years now with the TNF inhibitors. Um, and the goal with this study is to find out if uh, this drug, cerilumab, which blocks a different pathway, um, could also be effective in treating sarcoidosis. Well, that sounds really promising. And, and it's, it's so frustrating when uh, a doctor says to a sarcoidosis patient, uh, yeah, you know, we think that this drug might work, but the insurance company says, well, that's not recommended for sarcoidosis. And, uh, and therefore, we're not going to pay for it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I've run into that. You, you mentioned Remicade, and that was difficult to get approved and, and finally got through with that. Um, but that, then I started having some liver enzyme issues with that, which I guess is the, is the one thing you watch with Remicade, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and then uh, and now uh, Humira is also in that group. 
And, mm-hmm. and again, you know, the, the doctors had to make several pleas to the insurance company before they would approve that. I would assu- assume that Cirilumab is in that same group, same category right now. Yeah. So I spend way too much of my time fighting with insurance companies to get approval for these treatments. And it is really frustrating for, especially for patients who are, who are not doing well and, and having delays in their care. But you know, I think it, the trend that I've seen, it's kind of moving in the wrong direction where, you know, things are being denied more frequently now. And it, it, to me, it feels like a lot of insurance companies have adopted the policy that if there's not, if it's not FDA approved for that indication, their immediate reaction is to deny it. Of course, we, you know, with sarcoid that we don't have FDA approved treatments because it's so rare. Um, fortunately, with the TNF inhibitors, usually we can get it approved through appeals which take a lot of, you know, person power and, and time and resources. Um, ultimately, the physician usually has to do a peer-to-peer call with someone from the insurance, but there are enough small studies that have shown benefits um, with TNF inhibitors, case reports, case series, things like that, that at least there's some published literature that you can send to them and, and often you can get those appeals through. Um, with Cirilumab, actually, it's it's almost impossible at this point to get it approved because there it, it really hasn't been studied until this this trial, and so we there's no published literature, even case reports of benefit. And without that, given that it's not an, an FDA indication for that drug, it's you pretty much can't get it approved. And we've found that a little bit after you know patients who have seemingly benefited in this, in at least in the open label portion of the study, which we're going to talk about. Um, when they complete the study, we've tried to get it for them through the clinic. Um, most of the patients I see and follow up in the clinic. And um, so far, it's it's been pretty routinely denied. So I think that's why we need to do these kind of studies to hopefully show benefit and then, and then you know, ultimately work on being able to get these things approved for patients. So have you successfully treated any patients then with Cirilumab? Outside of the trial? Outside of the trial, I mean, so, there must have been something that made you think, "Wow, this this looks like it might work." No, actually, so the the, the sort of genesis for this study was was really based more on on basic science and understanding of disease mechanisms. So, you know, I mentioned that sorlimab blocks this inflammatory cytokine called interleukin six, and there have been a number of studies that have shown that IL-6 is elevated in the, the lung fluid that comes out when you do a bronchoscopy in patients with sarcoidosis. And one study re- really nicely demonstrated, you know, if you look at patients with just idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or systemic sclerosis um, or healthy patients who had a bronchoscopy for some reason, um, and, and then compare that to sarcoidosis, the IL-6 levels in the fluid in the lungs from sarcoidosis patients is significantly uh, more elevated. Um, It's also been shown to be elevated in the blood of sarcoidosis patients as well. So, you know, there have been these observations that IL-6 is elevated. um, And we know from studying other diseases like rheumatoid arthritis that the IL-6 has a lot of uh, effects on the immune system that would kind of make sense in terms of promoting disease in sarcoidosis. Um, a couple of things that it does, it, it uh, induces T cells, which are, you know, one form of immune cell that are, uh, it's part of what we call the adaptive immunity, which is something that, that forms over time and it has a memory 
Um, and that, that arm of the immune system is comprised of T cells and B cells. B cells make antibodies and T cells either help other immune cells and can kind of lead to the cascade of inflammation or they, um, they're also the cells that help you directly kill infected cells if you have an infection. Um, and there are many different subsets of T cells, but IL-6 promotes the differentiation into a specific subset that we call TH17 cells. Um, and in sarcoidosis, we think that, that the two subsets of T cells that probably matter the most are TH1 and TH17 cells. Um, and so we think that this drug, which will block IL-6, will hopefully prevent the formation and differentiation of these TH17 cells. Um, and the other aspect of that is that we all have regulatory T cells, which instead of killing things or causing inflammation, actually do the exact opposite. They're there to kind of shut down the immune response. And so those, those cells are really important for immune mediated diseases like sarcoid, um, because if they're not functioning well, then you have ongoing inflammation and damage. Um, and so, and what interleukin-6 does in the body is it basically blocks these regulatory T-cells from forming or differentiating. And so, again, right. by blocking the IL-6, we hope, you know, that you'll have an expansion of these regulatory T-cells that will help dampen down the immune response and inflammation. Well, um, that, you know, that that's, it sounds like it all makes sense, right? So, so what, what you're finding is is an elevated level of, uh, uh, was it IL-6? Yep. And you found you've got a drug that blocks the IL-6 formation. And so, ergo ipso facto, uh, yeah. let's try that drug and see if it doesn't work. So now you've launched a, a clinical trial on this and you are recruiting patients for it and you need 15 and you've got 12, as uh, we're recording this, which is we're recording on June 23rd of 2021, in case somebody winds up listening to this far in the future. Um, so how close are you to getting this trial really up and going? And, uh, and if people hear this in time, what do they do to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, yeah, we've been very fortunate partnering with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, who's really helped, you know, with our recruitment. And um, we've gotten the word out locally and, and talked to a lot of providers, you know, all over the state. And actually, we have patients who come from Southern California, from Nevada, from other neighboring states. So, you know, it's, it's definitely when you're in a clinical trial, as some people probably know, it's definitely... Uh, it can be burdensome because the you know you are very closely monitored. So we have visits on site every two to four weeks. So it can be a lot of traveling. Um, so we're very appreciative of our patients who are really dedicated to advancing this research and understanding. And obviously, they're hoping to get benefit from the treatment as well. Um, but yeah, we, our recruitment has gone well, and, and we have twelve patients. So we're looking for the final three. Um, the study lasts a total of 28 weeks and then and then an additional six weeks of safety follow-up. So a total of 34 weeks. So once the last patient is in the study, you know, we'll we'll be wrapping it up in the in the next, you know, six to eight months after that. Um so so let's let's say everything turns out the way you, you think it's gonna turn out. Um is that a final step or just the first step in making this drug available easily for SARC patients? Yeah. 
I think so. We're yeah, we're very hopeful that the the final result will be positive. Of course, we won't know until the end when we unblind it and and look at the second phase that that is blinded to see you know if there really is benefit. Um, if there is, then we'll you know we'll either way we'll definitely publish this study, and if it shows benefit, that may provide enough evidence to at least you know tr- convince some insurance companies that it's worth trying off label in sarcoidosis, um, it, it still will likely get denied by many. Um, and, but in terms of actually getting this drug approved, you know, this is just the first step of many. So what would have to happen is, you know, there would have to be a very positive signal that would convince basically the company that makes this drug, which is Sanofi, to, that it's worth kind of investing a lot of resources and in, in moving forward with larger studies. So to get approval, you would have to have two phase three studies that should show benefit. This is a phase two study, meaning it's much earlier in the development and it's a small study. Um, ultimately, you would then need to go on to a, two larger phase three studies that showed benefit. And then you could take that package forward to the FDA to talk about approval for use in sarcoidosis. If I'm not mistaken, there are other than prednisone, zero drugs that are sort of um, on men are uh, on label for right. sarcoidosis right now, right? They're, right, they're even zero. methotrexate, which is the most commonly used drug, you know, it wasn't formally studied in a way that that led to an indication. So yeah, basically, for the most part, everything we use is based on experience and and uh, you know, patient you know series and reports, but nothing, nothing, no rigorous large phase three studies, right. So uh, when we look at this then, so your phase two study probably won't be done and published until early 2023, if I'm doing my math correctly. Yeah, I think I, I would, my goal is to have the last patient out, meaning, you know, done with the last patient visit in about a year from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we would, you know, be able to put the manuscript together within a, a few months. So I think, yeah, I think kind of end of, of 2022 or early 2023 is probably reasonable. And then that leads to a larger study. Would that be maybe uh, at multiple medical facilities or would you stay right there at Stanford with it? And how would that work? Yeah, that so that would be the hope. You know, I think, again, it, it these kind of things, it comes down to at what makes sense at the time for the company in terms of their their portfolio and drug development and resources and whether they want to move forward. I think there is a lot of interest from a number of companies and moving forward with therapeutics in sarcoidosis. And so, you know, hopefully that would be of interest to, to the company that makes Cerlimab. Um, but yeah, then if, if that's the case, then we would structure a, a large study that would definitely be multi-site, even potentially international, you know, on the order of a few hundred patients, probably instead of, instead of 15. Right. I just interviewed the uh, director from uh, Sarcoidosis UK. So um, they're, they're, they're involved uh, with the podcast. And so if you need, if you need people in the UK, I, I, yeah, I absolutely. Nice. I, I'm sure you have better connections than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we look at this now, it, it, Sarcoidosis appears to be sarcoidosis no matter where it is in the body, but you are focusing primarily on pulmonary sarc. Am I right? Actually, no, I think that's one of the uh, kind of, I would say, more innovative aspects of this study. So 
you know, if you, there aren't a lot of clinical trials that have been done in sarcoidosis, but for the, for those that have been done, if you look at them, they're almost all organ specific. And, and the reason that that's done is because you need to have an objective metric um, to say whether or not there was improvement. So, you know, if you, if you do a study that's just looking at patients with pulmonary disease, usually the outcome measure is the change in the, the forced vital capacity or some measure of lung function based on pulmonary function tests. Um, other studies have been done that just look at patients with cutaneous sarcoid, meaning skin involvement, and, and that basically looks at the, the body surface area that's involved and other, other measures of, of the disease in the skin. And then there are other studies looking at, for instance, uveitis or, or the sarcoidosis in the eye, and, and the ophthalmologists have different disease activity measures that they use to say whether or not the eye has improved with treatment. So you can imagine that if you wanted to do a study where you included all those patients, how are you going to have a common endpoint that you can say in all these patients, we're going to measure it at the beginning, we're going to treat them, and we're going to measure it at the end and see if they improved. And so we, you know, we wanted to be able to include all of these patients, um, mostly because we, you know, we wanted to see if this drug was helpful across all the different manifestations. And also, of course, it helps to improve recruitment if you can include patients with different disease manifestations. So we had to kind of think outside of the box about how we could come up with an endpoint that would be common amongst everybody. So the way that we designed this study is that basically it's all patients have to have active disease, whatever part of the body is affected, it has to be active to the point that they require ongoing steroid treatment. Um, and the minimum at, at, at a minimum of 10 milligrams of prednisone a day or more. And that basically tells us that their treating provider and the patient, you know, feel like the disease is active, something's going on, because, of course, nobody would want to be on the prednisone if they were doing well. And so we only include patients who are on 10 milligrams or more prednisone, they enter the study. And then in the first 16 weeks, it's what we call open label, which means everybody gets the treatment. They know they're getting the treatment and I know they're getting the treatment. And for that first 16 weeks, we watch them as they get the treatment and we have a, a taper of the prednisone that occurs over that first 16 weeks. So that by week 16, every patient is completely off the prednisone and only on the cerilumab. And if at any time during the taper, they feel like the disease, what, however their disease is affecting them, if it's getting worse, then we would stop the taper and maybe go back up on the prednisone. But at that point, they would sort of fail the treatment with cerilumab because it's clearly not helping enough to allow them to get off prednisone. And so then at week 16, we kind of have this common endpoint of, you know, are you doing well enough to be off prednisone or not? And then if for those patients who have successfully gotten off the prednisone, they then enter the second sort of phase of the study, which is an additional 12 weeks. And instead of being open label, that 12 weeks is, is a, a randomized uh, blinded withdrawal period. So half the patients are, are randomized to continue the cerilumab and half the patients are switched to placebo. And again, it's blinded. So at that point, the patient doesn't know and I don't know um, if they're continuing on cerilumab or getting placebo. But then we watch for an additional 12 weeks. And again, these patients are all off prednisone at this point. So presumably those patients who had done well, but then got switched to placebo 
will probably have a flare or worsening of their disease over that 12 weeks. At, the, at whatever point that occurs, even if it occurs right away within a week, you know, they would exit the study as sort of a treatment failure and, and get put on appropriate therapy. So it's not like they have to stay in the study for 12 weeks, not doing well, not feeling well. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. And then at the end of at, at the end of that 12 weeks, we make the assessment, OK, how many patients in each of those two arms uh, made it to the end doing, you know, still doing well. And that's actually our primary outcome is, is seeing how well patients do in that final 12 week period. Is cerilumab expensive? Yeah, it is. I, um, you know, it's uh, in that same sort of category as the TNF inhibitors and, and other drugs that are, you know, it depends on, um, it's complicated because different insurance companies have different agreements um, with, you know, to get drugs on their formulary. So they negotiate prices and, the pharmacy benefits managers negotiate these prices. So it's sort of different depending on your insurance plan, but you know, it can range from 30 to 50,000 a year for these types of medicines. Right. And, and is it, uh, is this an IV or a pill or how do, how do people uh, take Cerilumab? Yeah. um, It's uh, self-injectable, you know, just uh, subcutaneous. So similar to Humira or Embryol. Okay, um, so, and it's it's every two right. weeks. So I have like a, a pen type injector. Yeah, for, for Humira, so it'd be the same thing. It's the same thing, and then um, there there is a, a, a you know just like there's Enbrel and Humira for TNF inhibitors for IL six inhibitors. There's Cerilumab, um, which is the brand name is Kefsara, and then there's also one called Tocilizumab or Actemra. Um, and that one has been around a little bit longer, also FDA approved for rheumatoid arthritis, works very similarly. Um, and that one can be given either subcutaneously, self-injected, or actually IV. So that one's available in two forms. Got it. So, and you, again, you're at Stanford, which is in California. And because you need to see these patients, you, you're looking for patients that are specifically geographically near you, right? Yeah, within within driving distance to come every two to four weeks. Um, we do actually have patients who fly in, you know, they're able to do that. Um, but it's, yeah, generally patients within a few hours is probably the easiest. Gotcha. So how, how uh, optimistic are you that you're onto something here? <laughs> well, I, you know, so far, I think the one of the most important aspects is that it's been very safe. So we know that it's safe, you know, generally speaking, in, in rheumatoid arthritis, but it's never been tested formally in sarcoidosis. And in, in a different patient population, you never quite know if there might be some reaction or something different. And, and thus far, we haven't had any serious adverse events or anything concerning. Um, there are some known side effects from IL-6 inhibitors like um, it can cause a temporary reduction in, in your white blood cell count, specifically neutrophils. Um, and it can also cause uh, liver function test elevations similar to the TNF inhibitors. So we have seen that occasionally in patients. And um, if you hold, hold the medicine for a dose, it, they usually improve. So kind of expected side effects, but nothing, nothing concerning. So I think that that's been really good to see that it appears safe um, in, in sarcoidosis patients. And 
you know, it's, it's really hard to comment on efficacy at this point, but I think, you know, at least in the open label period, patients have generally done well, been able to get off the prednisone and the vast majority have, you know, entered the second phase, which is blinded. And so at least in the open label phase, they feel better. We've been able to taper the prednisone for most patients. And, um, you know, we won't really know uh, our true primary endpoint until the end when we can unblind the study and, and see those results. Right. We're talking with Dr. Matt Baker, MD from uh, Stanford University, who is working on a clinical trial for cerilimab, uh, which is showing some, some promise for sarcoidosis patients. And you are a rheumatologist, correct? Yep, that's right. So right. I see um, I see all sorts of rheumatic diseases, but I probably about half of what I do involves sarcoidosis. Got half of what you do. So how many how many sarc patients would you say you're treating right now throughout your practice? Uh, easily a hundred. I think um, we you know we have um, I, I, so we formed a what we call the Stanford Multidisciplinary Sarcoidosis Program about I think about two years ago now. Um, which I'm, you know, co-director of with Ron Vitellis, who's a cardiologist, and Rishi Raj, who's a pulmonologist. And then we we have a, a bunch of other subspecialists who are interested in sarcoid, kind of in every field um, that we work closely with. And so I, I particularly actually see a lot of cardiac sarcoidosis. Um, Dr. Vitellis and I sort of just naturally started co-managing those patients over the last five, six years, and that, you know, we built up a panel of at least 50 patients with cardiac sarcoid, which is a pretty rare, you know, it's a rare manifestation of a rare disease, but we found that we were seeing a lot of it. And that was sort of what sparked our interest in forming this center, which is, um, you know, very collaborative and, and provides more comprehensive care for patients. Yeah, I, that's that's amazing. Um, so, are patients finding you because you have created this center? Is that how it definitely works? now? I think you know before it was just sort of naturally, you know. I think just were it was more word of mouth and and different providers would refer in and stuff. But now that we sort of have this official program and we have a website and things like that, it's. Yeah, it's just kind of exploded. We we have so many referrals, we almost don't know what to do with it. But it's great, and you know, we're definitely um, I think improving the program daily, and and definitely helping patients. So, so where do you think sarcoidosis belongs? Is it under rheumatology? Is it under cardiology? Is it under neurology? Or do we uh, do we always need a, a, a general practitioner and then whatever ologists uh, <laughs> is closest to where SARC is in, in your body? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's very much institution specific. I, you know, I trained in Boston and at where, where I did my medicine residency, it definitely sort of fell under the pulmonologist saw it mostly. And then you know, out here, it was definitely more, it didn't really feel like any one group had kind of claimed it. And, you know, I think I'm biased, but I think there's definitely a very important role for the rheumatologist to play because I think we're, we're getting more comfortable using treatments like biologics, like TNF inhibitors in patients with sarcoid. And I think it's 
pretty widely recognized that, that that there's a lot of benefit to those with those treatments. And so, you know, as rheumatologists, we're really comfortable using those. We use them every day in the vast majority of our patients. Every patient with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, you name it, they pretty much the majority are on these types of treatments. Whereas for pulmonologists, cardiologists, even neurologists, they, they don't use TNF inhibitors ever really. So that, you know, I think they certainly any individual physician can, can learn about it and get comfortable using it. But on the whole, I think it, you know, that that's the role that the rheumatologist can play is to help guide those treatments. Um, so for instance, like a lot of the patients with mild pulmonary disease, um, with no other organ manifestations who either need no treatment or maybe a little bit of prednisone or methotrexate. I don't necessarily see those patients. Um, uh, that is often just managed by our pulmonary group. But if it gets to the point where something else is involved or it's progressing and they're thinking about escalating the therapy, then that's typically when I would see them and, and help guide that management. Gotcha. You know, the, one of the things that people tell me when they come on the podcast, and I'd say probably 75% of the, of the people who've appeared on the Sark Fighter podcast are patients. And almost all of them go through a period of no diagnosis or misdiagnosis. And that's because doctors just aren't looking for sarcoid because it's so rare. Right. Um, so I don't really want to blame doctors, <laughs> but what can we do to, to get the medical community at large to look for sarcoidosis sooner. Is there, is yeah, there a path I, to that? I think it's challenging. And I think, um, you know, not to disparage like non academic centers in any way. I mean, I think, you know, there's so many important roles and that the doctors play in the community, but I think that if you have a condition that you feel, you know, that's undiagnosed that you feel is, is just something rare and that nobody's been able to figure out. I mean, I think, Generally speaking, at these at large academic centers, we're kind of trained to really think about the the super rare things. And in a lot of you know, for a lot of providers who are out in the community and stuff, I mean, ninety nine percent of what they see is is stuff that's that they recognize that's pretty ordinary. And so, I think it, you know, if I were that patient, I would definitely want want to you know, patients go to like the Mayo Clinic for few days to just get the full gamut of tests like that type of approach or or at least being referred to the whatever the local you know for, you know UCLA or UCSF or here or something um, just to get get an additional opinion because I think a lot a lot of what we see are patients who kind of are maybe not from major centers and have floated around for a few years and and then when they finally get established here you know we can help make that diagnosis mm-hmm yeah, sarcoidosis is, it's, it's without a biopsy, it's hard to diagnose, is it not? Yeah, it is. I mean, that's, I think, you know, definitely an area that is a huge unmet need is additional diagnostic tests, whether it's a blood biomarker or something else that could help us to, to diagnose it without having to necessarily get an invasive tissue diagnosis. Yeah. So let's go back to your research with uh, Um Do you foresee, for instance, maybe an NIH grant coming down the pipe if if you um, if you get to that next stage where this is really showing a lot of promise, so we can get 
so you can get a lot of money behind this and and really get something going or or I mean what what's the course of this? Yeah, I think I mean that there's sort of two options at the point, you know, if this study is positive and and the goal is to move forward with a phase 3 study, you, there's kind of two options. One is to is to have the company be interested and and fund it through an industry sponsored study. And if, if they're not, you know, but there's a compelling reason to move forward, then the NIH is a, is a great mechanism um, to potentially fund the study. I, th- I think generally speaking, you know, if the company is interested, the, the support that will come from the industry sponsored trial is probably more. And so that, that would probably enable the study to move forward with more ease. But um, definitely NIH can provide important mechanisms as well. Well, I'd like to see you uh, have some success with this. And if 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 people are in California, uh, within driving distance of Stanford, uh, I, I'm, by the time people hear this, will you already have your other three patients, or are you still seeking those those last three to get to your fifteen? No, I think if 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 patients hear this and they're interested, they should definitely reach out. Um, if you you know, just Google my Matthew Baker at Stanford, you know, on my profile, it has my email, you can feel free to email me. Um, Because even if we've already met, you know, full enrollment, you know, I can definitely keep in touch with. uh, And I've done that with a number of patients who didn't necessarily meet the criteria for this study. But you know, we keep a list of people who are interested in being contacted for future studies and things like that. So definitely, patients should feel free to reach out. Okay. Um, so, and then the, the, the last thing I want to ask you is if you have a hundred patients, are 70 of them uh, pulmonary patients? Is, are you following, or you said you see a lot of cardiac patients. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, you're very rare. Do I get a chance to talk to a doctor that has so many SARC patients? Yeah. What, what are you seeing? What are the commonalities? What, what's, what's, yeah, even rare to you. I think it's it's really skewed because I so like my panel of patients is probably way different than like if you went to just a pulmonary clinic, right? Because like I so the majority of my patients do have some additional uh, organ involvement, and it's usually something quite severe. So I see a fair amount. Like I said, a lot of cardiac sarcoid. I actually see a fair amount of neuro sarcoid. And then I happen to have a lot of patients with osseous, which means, you know, bone involvement. So that's reported as a pretty rare, you know, manifestation, but I would say, you know, probably 10 to 20% of my patients that I see have probably 20% have, have significant bone involvement, you know, on the PET scan, just lots of FDG avid lesions throughout the, usually through the spine and, and proximal bones. So, um, yeah, so I, I tend not to see like the really straightforward mild pulmonary disease, but um, a- amongst those patients that have neuro, cardiac, other things, most of them also do have a little bit of pulmonary disease. So, you know, the majority of patients you see, no matter what, have lung involvement, um, but I'm usually seeing them because they have additional issues. So the first thing you do is prednisone and then methotrexate. Is that is the standard protocol? Yeah. And usually by the time I'm seeing them, they've already kind of failed that approach. And so then, you know, for the most part, it's TNF inhibitors. Um, you know, some, sometimes rarely we might use something like rituximab, which 
um, deplete B cells, but there's less evidence, I think, to support that. And we generally uh, go to the TNF inhibitors. Rituximab, what's the more common name for that? Um, that Rituxan or Rituximab, it's a okay. B cell depleting drug. So it's, okay. it's used, it is used in rheumatoid arthritis and a few other rheumatic diseases, but it's also used to treat lymphoma and other malignancies. Okay. All right. All right. Um, uh, we, and we could go down all the uh, MAB drugs. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, it seems like everything ends with that suffix, but um, well, listen, I, I wish you the best of luck with this. And I hope uh, listeners are, are, finding a cause for hope and they're, and they're optimistic based upon what you're finding. And man, it would just be great if you could hit a home run with this really map. Yeah. And I, you know, I think in terms of just remaining optimistic, I would say, you know, I get approached by companies frequently now about helping them develop new trials for, for their drugs. So I think it's really encouraging to see that that these big drug companies have an interest in sarcoidosis. I don't think that was the case like 10 years ago. Um, I think, you know, part of it is that a lot of the other diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis are, are pretty well managed now. You know, there's a lot of options and most of the drugs work quite well for patients. And so I think there's an interest in, in you know, looking in these other bit more rare diseases that have a huge unmet need. So things like sarcoidosis. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm actively working on developing new protocols with different drugs, which, you know, I can't talk about specifically, but I think it's encouraging that, that, that there's a lot in the pipeline. All right. Dr. Matt Baker, Stanford University. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So thanks to Matt for the interview. I'll uh, let you know when he makes some progress on Ceruliumab, and we'll just uh, keep on uh, keep on hoping that that works out the way it sounds like it will. It's there's a lot of reason for hope there. By the way, if you are new to sarcoidosis, you're trying to figure out what you have, what's going on in your body, go back and listen to my interview with Dr. Simon Hart of the UK. That is in episode two. If you want to know more about me and my whole backstory with SARC, that's episode one. Uh, a recent release is an interview with Leo Casimo, who heads up Sarcoidosis UK. So if you're listening in the UK or anywhere in Europe and you want some answers, uh, you should check out episode 38. And I want to thank Leo for for reaching out and wanting to come on the podcast. And I just, I love the fact that we're getting some reach with uh, this little project that we started just over a year ago. And speaking of the UK, a future episode, I just completed the interview, but I haven't completed production yet. An interview with Juliet Coffer, who is just delightful, and uh, she is raising money for Sark UK simply by walking around her house. And it's an amazing story because for her, walking around the house is quite an accomplishment. And uh, she's just one of these people that, you know, again, oh, you don't look sick, right? She doesn't look sick. She doesn't sound sick. But she has a hard time walking from the dining room table to the kitchen uh, and still breathing so check that out. That's a, an upcoming, as I record this now in July of 2021, 
Uh, that is an upcoming episode, but I'll just put that little teaser out there for you. Uh, and then also uh, episode 39 with Dr. William Damsky of Yale University. If you're interested in more promising research on SARC, that's out there. And then don't forget to go back and listen to, we, we recorded a couple of bonus episodes through the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. First of all, on SARC and COVID-19 and how it impacts those of us with with SARC and, and when you're taking these um, uh, autoimmune-related drugs uh, and whether we are less or more at risk with COVID-19. And so all the, all the best people in the world to talk about that were on a, a Zoom call, and that was a, actually a seminar sponsored by FSR, and I moderated that, and then they've let me republish that as a podcast. So you might want to look at that. And then we did the same thing, uh, a special on dealing with prednisone. So those are both recent 2021 uh bonus episodes and these are these were rare opportunities when all the right people were in the same room if you could ask and if you wanted to know answers to these questions that everybody seemed to have you know who would you want to ask well guess what we had all the experts in one room at one time and we asked those questions so if you want go back and listen to those if you want to know about how other people are just hating their life with prednisone which one of the doctors that we interviewed uh called it poison uh, that you were putting in your body, and he said it would never get approved as a drug. Uh, if if you came forward with prednisone today and it wasn't already out there, uh, the, the FDA would never approve it because there's too many side effects. So, and yet we all take it. So that's something to listen to. And man, I'll tell you, uh, it was a it was a it was a good moment for me, and I was very happy to be asked to moderate that discussion. Please send me an email. Uh, it's in the show notes. It's carlinagency at gmail.com. Please follow The Sark Fighter on Instagram and Facebook, and you can follow me on my adventures and my travels and my travails with Sark. And I just want to tell you that I appreciate your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. It helps me reach more people and grow the show if you would just share the link on your social media. And if you like it, do me a favor and just tell one person. Just tell one person. If you know somebody else who has SARC, your doctor, you know, whatever, let them know. Let them know that, that we're out here doing this. Uh, it really is helpful. And give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever uh, you listen to your podcasts. I want to say thanks once again to Dr. Matt Baker for joining me here today. And let's hope that research finds continued success. Until next time, keep fighting.
your life It's not the why, but the how That plagues my mind A new perspective Appreciate what you've got With dead men walking in an instant It could be gone And I don't know what will come Look for silver linings But still I find none The worst potential Please remember